I'm Tim. I'm an alcoholic. Thanks for joining us today. Rusty and I have asked our friend Dorothy to join us, and we are going to be talking in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the chapter, How It Works, and we're going to be talking about the fourth step and the fourth step inventory. When I listen to Dorothy talk about a particular part of the fourth step inventory, it means so much to me because of her confidence and her ability to express the ideas around this topic. The topic is related to the sex inventory in the fourth step. Dorothy changes the whole dynamic from a subject that people hate to talk about into one that I love to listen to her talk about and is particularly applicable as we get older. I'm going to ask Dorothy to read from page 68 in both the third edition and the fourth edition of the book Alcoholics Anonymous, Now About Sex. Dorothy, take it away. Good morning, folks. I'm Dorothy, alcoholic, and also Al-Anon. I want to give Al-Anon credit because it's helped me so, mm -hmm. so much. Page 68 in the fourth edition, I avoided that paragraph. Every time we would be on that subject or that page, I would think, please, God, don't let me get that page. <laughs> I just didn't want to talk about sex. I'm so much older than so many people that young people don't even think about the fact that sex is not permanent. I avoided it, and somebody would say, okay, Dorothy, and then one time it was on that paragraph, and it now about sex. Many of us needed an overhauling there, but above all, we tried to be sensible on the question. And it's so easy to get way off the track. Here, we find human opinions running to extremes. It would just give me the shivers to read that because there is so much more in loving a person and it has nothing to do with sex. True, you have sex when you're young and it gets better and better and better until it doesn't. Now, it, it doesn't say that everyone goes through it, you have health problems, and you have all kinds of medication problems, and then age problems. All sorts of things interfere with having a normal, whatever normal is, sex life. But sex has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with, I say, love and intimacy. Sex goes away. And believe me, you young ones that are sitting here listening about this, it's sad news for you, but it does happen. And the people that are in this program age beautifully. They age mentally, academically. They age all kinds of ways, emotionally. But their bodies also age, and especially my husband was cardiac. He had his first heart attack when he was 39 and another bad one when he was 44. And he wasn't even eligible for an open-heart surgery. They did one here in, in where we live now, and they said to him, Mr. Maloney, you just are not eligible. You have too many spots. And he looked up in the redhead that he was. He says, good, because I wouldn't let you do it anyway. He was redhead and determined, and but 
we have good doctors here, and they did keep him alive for over 20 years on medication, and he died too young. But there's so much more to sex about loving somebody, and that's what I call the word intimacy. And it used to make me laugh because I'd be at the sink washing dishes, and he'd come up behind me and lean against me and make some funny crack. And that is intimacy. Or he'd pat me on the bottom because my hands were in the water, the soapy water. And that is intimacy. Just when you no longer can perform the sex act, whatever that turns out to be, it does go away. But if you love somebody from the bottom of your heart, raise children with them, and go through bad times and good times and happy times and sad times and even loss. That's intimacy. And I think you need to think about that. And I hope that everyone that gets to this paragraph where it starts off now about sex, I hope that you will all think about the word intimacy because that never goes away. Mm -hmm. When sex goes Intimacy never goes away. You've mm -hmm. got that for the rest of your life when you're together. And human opinions, that's one thing, but you have to think about being a partner, a wife, a husband, and just know that you've been given a gift of love and a connection. And now when you read that now about sex, I hope you'll think about it twice. Good to be here. Thank you. Dorothy, I'm not going to let you stop there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I would like to move over to page 69, and I'm going to read a little bit and ask you to talk about that. We reviewed our own conduct over the years past. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Whom had we hurt? Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Where were we at fault? What should we have done instead? We got this all down on paper and looked at it. In this way, we tried to shape a sane and sound ideal for future sex life. We subjected each relation to this test. Was it selfish or not? We asked God to mold our ideals and help us live up to them. We remembered always that our sex powers were God-given and therefore good neither to be used lightly or selfishly, nor to be despised or loathed. Whatever our ideal turns out to be, we must be willing to grow toward it. We must be willing to make amends where we have done harm, provided that we do not bring about still more harm in doing so. In other words, we treat sex as we would any other problem. In meditation, we ask God, what we should do about each specific matter. The right answer will come if we want it. You so eloquently talk about the fact that sex goes away and intimacy doesn't. But even in that intimacy, we can become selfish, we're giving, and intimacy is God-given. Can you highlight it on that a little bit? I have it highlighted. Was it selfish or not? We ask God and so forth. Yeah, I do have it highlighted. They were God-given for procreation, basically, in the beginning. 
And I can give you funny stories on that, too. <laughs> Where na naive was I. In what way, Dorothy? Well, I've never been with any other man except my husband. And I was 14 when I met him on the boardwalk at Coney Island. He was running from somebody. There was a cop that was combing his hair in the mirror at the cigarette machine. Mm -hmm. And my husband went over to get cigarettes, and he probably stood in front of this guy who was combing his big pompadour, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And he got mad at somebody that stood in front of him. And he started after him. My husband, who I knew him from the neighborhood in Bay Ridge in Brooklyn, but he sat down right beside me and he says, just make believe you know me. <laughs> and he was good looking and I knew him from the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So I did claim that I knew him and he mm -hmm. was here with, with me. But I was only 14 and he was 18. So I couldn't date him. My mom wouldn't let me. So years later, a friend of mine, her brother, set me up with a blind date. And when I opened the door, it was him. When right. you live in a neighborhood, you know everybody. Mm -hmm. I had seen him delivering food on a bicycle. He delivered food orders. But at that point in time, I was 17 and he was 21. So I was allowed to date him. My mom said it would be okay. Dorothy, it makes me chuckle when you say that because my mother skipped two years in school and started dating my father. And the first time he came to her house to pick her up, my grandmother said, I'm not letting my 14-year-old daughter go out with you. She had lied to my dad about her age. Oh. He was four years older than she was. Uh -huh. She got caught. <laughs> red-handed right there by her mother in front of my dad, you know, when they went to officially go out for the yeah. first time. <laughs> well, Dorothy, here's a question that I wanted to ask. I have read in many books on recovery and in healthy relationships, and it says that if in a marriage, if one of the people is alcoholic, drug addict, what, whatever you want to say, they're so self-absorbed. There can be no intimacy within that relationship. So when you say that you had that intimacy, was your husband alcoholic? My husband was a beer drinker, and uh, he very rarely drank hard liquor. He would, like a Saturday, he was off on Saturday, so a couple of his buddies from company would come over, and they'd have beer, a couple of cans mm -hmm. of beer, but he didn't like the Tulsa beer because it was 3.2. 3.2, yeah. And when I first came here and my husband was, he had a bad heart attack mm -hmm. and a priest was in the room in the hospital. And this is funny, I just had to add it. Mm -hmm. He was a priest from Ireland and I said to him, Father, what are the percentage of Catholics here mm -hmm. in Tulsa? And he had this accent, the brogue, and he says, mm -hmm. well, my dear, it's kind of like the beer. It's about 3.2. <laughs> <laughs> and Catholics were rare in Tulsa yeah. until the oil company started transferring the Catholics from the east. east and yeah. now we've all intermarried, right. you, <laughs> might, you might say. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just was funny. 
every now and again, now was my husband an alcoholic? Like I say, I don't know, he drank enough, he didn't drink hard liquor, hardly mm -hmm. at all, but he would go to the liquor store. He wouldn't dare buy a can of beer in a grocery store because mm -hmm. it was 3.2. Mm -hmm. So he went to the liquor store, store. and bought his beer. Mm -hmm. And one time they had a sale and he bought up so many cases oh, of the six-point right? beer huh? that one of his city's, one of his company friends <laughs> came over and said, called him by his <laughs> last name, and he said, you son of a gun, you bought up most of the beer in that <laughs> liquor store. You didn't leave any for the rest of us. Dorothy, my dad was from Pittsburgh. Okay. And he had that same affection for strong beer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he was an alcoholic. I didn't know when I was young. I, that's something that just was a realization later. Uh -huh. But I can remember when I was beer drinking age, I'm not a beer drinker. And he knew that. And he got a beer called Iron City Light that was brewed in Pittsburgh. And being from the fact that it was from Pittsburgh, it was in a steel can. And wow. so it got extremely cold. But when you took it out of the refrigerator, it got hot quickly. So he would go into the refrigerator and get two Iron City Lights. And he would come out by the pool and he'd give me one of them knowing that I would drink sips out of it because my beer had to be cold. Mm -hmm. So he knew that he was going to get two cans of beer when he went to get one for himself. And that was dad. That six-point beer had to go to the liquor store to get it. What would you guys say to what my question earlier was about can there be intimacy in an alcoholic home? I'm not sure there can be for the people that I've worked with and, and the home that I grew up in. And when I mean intimacy, I'm like, I don't mean having sex. I'm talking about that level that happens for two sober people. And me and my wife have it, so I can say that. We, we will talk about anything. I mean, we spent an hour this morning just sitting at the table talking about different things that we'd read out of a, out of a recovery book. But there's a knowing of that other person to the debt. The, the alcoholic, when they're drinking, there's so much into themselves that they're incapable of really caring at that depth for other people because it's always about them and what is going on for them at that time. I think what's missing in that dynamic, speaking from experience, is the passion and the compassion mm. of that relationship because I am self-absorbed from that alcoholic behavior that it's hard for me to care deeply about another person because I'm too self-absorbed. Mm -hmm. I know in my own past life, I was married, of course, three times, and it was always about me. That had to do with my kids, no matter, or my wife, my children, whatever. I never gave of myself as I have given of myself in these years of sobriety that mm. I've had. My husband worked for almost 40 years or so, more than maybe, with uh, his company that he started with on Wall Street back when he was 18. In mm -hmm. fact, they sent him through college. If he got wow. good grades, they paid. It's hard to be an alcoholic, a beer drinker that works 40 hours a week and three nights a week goes to college. And yeah, by the time he graduates, he has three kids. 
We were married and have three children by mm -hmm. the time he actually graduated because if he came home at 9, 9.30 at night, he might have a can of beer before he got tired and went to bed. So he didn't drink to excess uh, all you know, the time. It was when on weekends he'd watch a ball game and put away a bunch of beer, mm -hmm. but he'd also help me with the kids or the house. Mm -hmm. And he was always a good dad. We would put together toys, you know, for Christmas that we had to hide. And uh, no, he was a good father. And he didn't drink, nor did I drink constantly. I couldn't drink and raise seven kids. But when we went out to somebody's house or something, mostly in the neighborhood, uh, we would probably drink more than likely to mm -hmm. excess. But that didn't happen all the time. Sure. After he retired, and he did retire fairly young because of his health. He would probably do something in the house to repair paint or do it, but he'd drink beer while he was doing it. But it didn't happen all the time. The strange thing is that you can't call someone an alcoholic. They have to call themselves. Oh, absolutely. And Steve, my youngest son, we had to turn off the respirator, mm -hmm. and we had a priest there, and... He had more than three major organs that were gone. He was on the respirator, didn't know anything. And uh, Steve, before he passed away, he told me that Dad told him that he thought he was an alcoholic. And that was a week before my husband died. You know, Steve was sober when I came into AA. Yes. He was sober, but he was sober a good many years, and then he'd go back out. And this is my own opinion. The one thing Steve lacked was spirituality. He would play golf with Gil rather mm -hmm. than ever go any place to church. Mm -hmm. And, of course, in those days, teenagers kind of went away from formal right. attendance. You uh -huh. know, that was what was happening in the 70s, mm -hmm. 60s, 70s. But it broke my heart that Steve would get 11, 12 years of sobriety and then he'd mm -hmm. go back out. We sent Steve to a treatment program. Cost a fortune. They didn't have, and he also wrecked a car brand new that his dad signed for. So we were up the creek financially with Steve. And after a while, we got fed up doing it over and over and over again. But he did get sober and had a long period 10 plus years, yes. I think, and married in an Al-Anon. And her mom was a sober alcoholic that everybody knew. Yeah, I remember when you first uh, when you first came in. Yeah, I went it, around to all the speakers' meetings because mm -hmm. I wanted to find out what kind of people am I going to be with all the time. I want to see if, mm -hmm. I want to hear their stories. And I did. I drove all over and I loved listening to people's stories. Mm -hmm. And I found myself in almost every single speaker. Well, when did you come to realize that you were alcoholic? Was it after your husband died? Yes, it was. And I was upset because I was a widow mm -hmm. at 59. And I drank for about 10 years hard drinking. I drank mostly and passed out on the couch. Mm -hmm. And I had a wonderful friend from New York, Italian, Italian friend, and she told it like it was. And I was up in New York 
for Thanksgiving parade and the lighting of the trees. And I guess I drank. I was staying with her daughter at the daughter's house, and I overdid it. Mm-hmm. Italians drink, but they very rarely get drunk. Mm-hmm. As far as the real Italian, they keep the jug of wine by their chair mm-hmm. at the dining room table. Wow. That they probably made in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> she said to me the next morning when I sobered up, uh, she said, call me by name, and she said, you have a drinking problem. And if you don't do something about it, we are not going to be friends any longer. And that was like putting a knife in my heart Mm because we were friends for a long time. And I thought about it, and that was Saturday. I went back to Tulsa from New York on Sunday. And on Monday, I went to AA office and found out I got all the material, all my books, found out where the meetings were, and uh, went to, uh, I called her after I went to my first meeting, and I told her, I said, I took what you said to heart. I don't want to lose you as a friend. And I went to AA, and she said, oh, my God, I didn't mean to be that drastic. (laughs) (laughs) She probably didn't want to let anybody know she had a friend in AA. (laughs) Probably, yeah, that's oh. what it usually is. Yeah, and she was Irish. That's, oh. That would be the worst part. Right. But I'd never, I never ever knew how lucky I was for her to face me with that. My children used to say things like, you're going a little hard on that, or mm-hmm. maybe, you know, they'd give me a little hint, but mm. never an ultimatum. And she was the only one that gave me that ultimatum. And what and when, saved, what, what year was that, Doris? When, uh, I came in in uh, December the 3rd, 2001. 2001. So I'll have 22 years. Yeah. Well, you know, in that time, and of uh, course I've known you all that time, and the people that you have helped and the people that, that you've made a difference in their lives, uh, it's just been a real blessing. And be in rooms be in the rooms with you and, and I, and I with you and, and I you. am one of those people uh, I guess my age helps me be honest I've always been somebody that talks to everybody yeah I like people and even though we've been on the phone a good since pandemic mm-hmm. you can tell somebody who's brand new yeah. and they're in pain and sometimes I don't even know who they are face-to-face. I have gotten to know a few of them Mm -hmm. face-to-face. I've often felt and done it, texted them and given them encouragement. Just maybe that one little text makes them feel like they're a little better. That Mm -hmm. It happened to me. Mm -hmm. And we are getting a lot of young ones in online. I was not a young one. No. But, but I was one of those people in pain that mm. you reached out to when I first got here. Oh, my gosh, I don't even remember. <clears throat> you don't have to. No. I do. Oh, well, good. And we've just developed a kinship. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're my adopted mother, if you will. Oh, my. <laughs> but That's so nice of you to say that. 
you know, it couldn't happen before the pandemic when we were still in the room because we formatted that meeting differently in the beginners. We just started and went around and it's yeah. where it started, it started and where it stopped, it stopped. Uh-huh. And it depended on where you were sitting. But I have to tell you, I have to confess that for the first couple years when we were attending online, those first two years I was hosting that beginners and big book study. And I made sure that when we were in the chapter, How It Works, that I knew how many people needed to read before I got to you so that I could have you read Now About Sex. <laughs> because... The first time I heard you talk about that subject, it just grabbed me because I know that sex is going to end. Intimacy doesn't have to. Yeah, yeah. And that is such an education that we don't think about because we are selfish. And knowing that if it's a true relationship, that that intimacy will carry us on mm -hmm. long after the sex is gone. Yeah, yeah. And I want to thank you for joining us today and talking about that. You're very welcome. When I sit in meetings, Dorothy, and, and uh, especially in an Al-Anon meeting, and I see, mm -hmm. of course, a lot of women, all ages, right? Mm-hmm. And, of course, there, you, you see so much pain in the, in the room from mm -hmm. whether they're married or not, but their significant other is alcoholic addict. We get a lot of addicts. We know it's okay. hardly anyone is just a pure alcoholic anymore. It's the pain there and the aloneness, and they're married, they're living with those folks, but there's no, you know, there's no intimacy. Yeah. The love that they're missing, you know, that's mm -hmm. what I, mm. that's what I see is the love they're they're missing, just the gentle touch, I love you, or whatever it may mm -hmm. be. And my heart always goes out to them because a lot of the the women won't leave. You know, I they, know. They won't leave their husbands, and they're missing out on their life because it's not. That's not what marriage is about. To live with somebody that is, like I was. I had some really great women in my life, mm -hmm. my wives, and I don't know how they put up with me when I look back on it. All my shenanigans, as mm. we used to say. Have you dealt with that with some women? My first sponsor in Al-Anon. And I say a sponsor because I, she wasn't actually my sponsor, but she meant a lot to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would be bawling about Steve. Mm -hmm. And now my other son was in Al-Anon before I was. Yes, yes. Because he was in for his brother. And uh, and that's all he did. He went to Al-Anon. And uh, when he finally crossed out, and I shouldn't even say that about it. it's his information but a lot of people realize at some point that they drink too much mm -hmm. even though they're not you know falling down drunk they just realize it you know you I said you know I never thought you were alcoholic and when the answer is well I can't even mow a lawn without drinking a case of beer mm -hmm. that's real much but I do remember I would say things and and I'd be so, I'd cry a lot about Steve. Mm -hmm. And Phyllis, God love her, <laughs> Phyllis would hand me a piece of paper with a purple top on it. And it's, she says, I think you need another one of these. 
and it was detach with love. Detach with love. I had a dozen of those before mm-hmm. I even thought about it because it's so hard to detach from a child, right. from a son. You can't detach. Even sons that are, well, you know, Steve probably spent time in, in jail because of stuff he did. I don't, mm-hmm. I mean, I remember we, I don't know whether you call it jail or prison or what, but I remember sending them cigarettes and stuff like that. You don't lose the love for a child, no matter what they do. But Phyllis was, I called her a sponsor because she just kept giving me those pieces of paper with the purple. And then eventually I did have another sponsor that lived with an alcoholic. So love, you know, endures even Mm -hmm. when... One of them is an alcoholic, does endure some people. I don't say everybody. When you mentioned that about mothers and sons, of course, you know, I've I've been a therapist for many, many years. Worked at the boys' home. Yep. And dealt with a lot of mothers and and their sons. I don't think a lot of males understand the closeness that a mother has especially with her sons. Mm-hmm. You asked me to let go of a child, I could probably do that easier than than a mother. Mm. Because I think this mothers carry these children for nine months and then they nurse them and take care of them and nurture them as they grow. And then when that young man becomes a man... It is so painful for them. That's who my heart really goes out to, is when I see somebody, and especially a lady in Al-Anon and mm-hmm. their children. Uh, a lot of the people today that are in Al-Anon, it used to be it was for the husband or a wife, but today it's a lot of chil- people are in Al-Anon because yeah. of their children and teenage children. So it continues to change. Don't they have alateen? Oh, they have for children sure. who have parents that that are, are absolutely that absolutely. hurts. It's a terrible disease, yeah. and that's exactly what it is. It's a disease. I think as an alcoholic, it didn't let me off the hook, but it made me feel a little less guilty when I realized because I have had grandparents. That Well, I'd say one that I know of, not my paternal, but my maternal Mm -hmm. grandparent, he drank. But I never really saw him completely drunk. I -hmm. I saw him, you know, just sitting there with his wine, Mm -hmm. but I never saw him really drunk. Mm -hmm. We we have no idea, our parents way, way back, whether they were or not. I'm the top of the food chain, the dinosaur. (laughs) There's four generations under me. And, of course, my grandson, he drives me. He's not a kid. He's 43. But uh, he forgot the stool to help me get up in his truck. He has those wheels that are bigger than me. So he had to literally pick me up and put me on the step. This conversation has gone in so many different directions. Directions. This has been a production of childrenofchaos.net, and we invite you to share your thoughts with us via email to comments at childrenofchaos.net. 
Children of Chaos is a forum to discuss topics related to and in concert with addiction and recovery in America, is not affiliated with, endorsed, or financed by any recovery or treatment program, organization, or institution. Any views, thoughts, or opinions expressed by an individual in this venue are solely that of the individual and do not reflect the views, policies, or position of any specific recovery-based entity or organization.